Hello and welcome to the podcast Love, Life and Loss. This week we talk to Grace who is a midwife. Listen as Grace talks about what it is like to be a midwife and her passion for the job. Grace highlights the disparities between women of colour and how this can impact women and the way the NHS treat us. So please join us. So hello and welcome to the podcast Love, Life and Loss. Um, I just want to thank you Grace for coming along today and agreeing to speak with us today with myself and Dawn. Um, I really, I'd like you to introduce yourself if that's okay and what you do and tell us a bit about yourself. Well, my name is Grace. I am a woman (laughs) and um, I'm a midwife. I work in the London Trust um, as a midwife. I was a nurse for a few years before that. So I kind of work predominantly in women's health and maternity as a profession. Um, I am also a singer, kind of, um, a singer. mother, a wife, many hats, but um, I think most of all I'm a woman. <laughs> yes. Um, and that's quite important, I think, especially with what we're going to discuss, because some of it is kind of not specific to um, mothers, but some of it is just about being a woman and, and how we feel as women. Um, yeah, 100%. That's quite important, yeah. And so, so you said you started off in, in nursing, and mm-hmm. what made you go into midwifery then? Well, for me, you know, for me, funnily enough, I was always aiming to go into midwifery. Um, but being the control freak that I am, I wanted to know everything and be on top of everything. I wanted to have as much knowledge and not be frightened of things that, um, you know, because obviously as women, you know, we're not free from health conditions just because we then become pregnant so a lot of pregnant women have comorbidities have diabetes have difficulties with blood pressure before they get pregnant and so often when they then come into maternity um, if you've not had that background of the nursing sometimes it can be quite frightening looking after women that have had pre-existing problems so I kind of I don't know it's a bit of control freaking me wanted to make sure I knew everything about everything well actually you know what as you're as you're speaking I'd never thought of it like that but I think that's probably because I always knew there were two tracks and there were the nursing tracks if you're already a nurse you can then move more easier into midwifery or you can go directly into it but as you're saying that it actually makes sense because childbirth and labor is probably part of the most and and pregnancy the most dangerous time in a woman's life or it can be because it can trigger so many things and so I think that having that medical knowledge yeah. that background medical knowledge should actually be more prevalent than just going the midwifery route yeah I mean to be honest I think part of how we have viewed maternity as medical historically has kind of led us down paths that we shouldn't really be going down because technically you're not sick as as someone that's pregnant. And Mm -hmm. it really is a normal bodily function, you know, it's a normal function of a woman's body to um, become pregnant, to carry the pregnancy and and to give birth. And a lot of, of, you know, if you think about in the caveman days, there weren't doctors and that involved in... in, midwifery and maternity. You'd get your neighbour, wouldn't you? You'd always have one. Right, exactly. You've got grandma, somebody come with yeah. the towels and a bucket of water yeah. <laughs> um so it wasn't 
you know, it wasn't a medical medical scenario. It's only now, I suppose, westernized and Western society, people have a lot more comorbidities, people smoke, people, you know, different lifestyle factors, which make it a bit more medically risky. Um, so there has to be some level, level of medical things involved, but realistically, you know, a lot of the time we look at maternity and pregnancy and childbirth as medical and it's not, you're not sick. Okay. Yeah, I, I, get, I get what you're trying to say. How, yeah. how, so how long have you been working in midwifery then? Um, qualified four years. Four? Well, I don't even know what it's year. It's before the pandemic. <laughs> we missed two years. So yeah, like, we missed. Yeah. Um, so 2018 I qualified. Yeah, four years. Yeah. Um, and my training took a year and a half. So I've been in immersed in the field probably five and a half years. Okay. Um, and did it, you know, the moving into midwifery, that whole thing of going in and, and, and doing it, has it lived up to your expectations? Was it, what did you think? Because I know you said that you always wanted to go that way first, yeah. but what, what was your reason for mid midwifery? And then is it all it's cracked up to be? Mm, that's a good question because I don't know what attracted me to midwifery truth be told it must have been I don't want to call it fate I don't want to call it you know there was something always in me from I was a uh, from I was a teenager that you know I felt like midwifery like that whole if you ask my parents anytime you find lose me and you want to find me, find me next to the baby. If there's a baby anywhere. <laughs> and, I, you know, my mum said it all the time, like when I was nine, you know, be in church or wherever we was, somebody's house. And if there's a baby there and you can't find Grace, find the baby and Grace will be there. <laughs> um, but I don't know. There was always something in me that was really drawn to, to midwifery. Um, is it all it's cracked up to be? Yeah, I'm just thinking that when I mean, you're saying how you're drawn to, to babies and that's what, what fired you, fueled you, but... I mean, truth be told, no, as I was going to say as well, you're right, it's like the babies is probably like 10% of it. Um, Can I ask, what you did you work in the hospital or in the community? Right now, I do both. Oh. So I, I work as a continuity lead. Um, which means you kind of see women from the beginning of their pregnancies all the way through. Um, ideally be there to help them give birth and then visit them at home postnatally. So it's a lovely mixture of all That's elements. That sounds really nice. Really, really, mm. nice. really, really nice. I, I have to say it's like, I mean, I, did, I didn't spend that long in the maternity unit because it was quite exhausting, mentally and emotionally draining. And I think you've you got to be... Um, You've got to have thick skin to spend 100% of your working life in the maternity unit, which, I mean, as a midwife, you have to have thick skin anyway, but it's, it's, it's tiring and I think my lifestyle isn't really set up for that. Okay. <laughs> um, do you work just, so what do you do? Do you still do a lot of shifts and all the rest of it? Yeah, is it more? still do shifts, um, but at least one day a week I'm in clinic, so it's a bit more slower pace you know, you're doing out, you're out and about doing visits. So in between your visit, you can sit and just gather your head for a minute. Whereas when you're in the unit, you kind of go like, it could be you deliver, you know, you help someone to give birth and then by the time you blink and spin around twice, the next one's coming through. So it, it can be really, really 
physically and emotionally draining because you do give, you know, as much as you're doing, you're emotionally invested in, in the person that you're caring for and you really want the best for that person. And so you're picking up on so many little things, the dynamic between the couple and whichever else birth partners there and all sorts of different things that I don't think people really um, realise. Yeah. How much aspects um, are involved. But there's, there's loads of different aspects as well, because it's you have to take into account different cultures as well, don't you? And, exactly. and different practices in different cultures as well. Exactly. And things like that. So, and and then, you know, part of, part of the job is that you're kind of building the atmosphere, you're helping to create the atmosphere in the room for that person who's, whatever stage of their journey they're at, you're, you're kind of, you're a bit of a fixer really because mm. a lot of the time that they're scared or you know and so you've got to be the person that breaks the ice in terms of the mood in the room and if you think for on a, if you do a 12-hour shift you're sitting in that room with it and that person's laboring you're in that room for 12 hours you might pop out and go and get some paper and come back you might you know but you're in that room for good you're in that room for a good 90 percent of of the time so if the rapport's not right, if the vibe is not right, it, it's, it, it means a lot. Um, it's funny that I hear you say all of that because how you are coming across in terms of your practice and how you care for women seems like what Louisa and I have been talking about over the past few weeks in terms of what we would want yeah. to see consistently. And that's part of what, that's part of what actually fuels the way that I care for people because... I always think back to when I had my second son, the woman that I had initially, when she came in the room, it was a little older. I think she was Bayesian. She was either Bayesian or Trini or something like that. Yeah. And she was lovely, but it was coming to the end of her shift. And then the woman that came on was a bit younger, stern Jamaican woman. And she was just pottering around doing her thing. And I was like, <laughs> and it, I resorted to making jokes about opening my bowels, in fact. Um, and then she had a little giggle and then it kind of settled down a bit when she realised that the, the atmosphere could be nice. But I just felt like you're supposed to come in a room and kind of set the precedent for the atmosphere. Do you understand? Yeah. Um, well, we, we, the mothers look to you. They're frightened. Yeah. They're in pain. There's a lot going on for them. And actually, even just a certain look or, you know, I know... It's the reassurance, isn't it, as well? little things like being being a bit fearful or um or kind of reserved about touching women or you know people really underestimate the power of not even just speaking but just contact yeah and yeah so me i i always think to myself gosh if if i was in labor what would i want right now and of course you cannot assume that is the same for everyone yeah but there's some universal language that is second to none you, you don't have to be speaking about it you you know yeah well, most mothers just want to feel safe yeah you know that they're with somebody that they can trust yeah 100 percent. so you so, know it, so, sorry grace but you avoided the question going back i don't know i know i was i was hoping he was gonna like i haven't forgotten so has it lived up to your expectations yes and no yes and no in honesty um, I am in love with my job, like in love with my job, but it's hard. Um, yeah, I hear that. 
I don't know what I expected. So it's a difficult question to answer, but I think the thing that keeps me going and staying in the job is the love that I have for it. Otherwise, I literally, I definitely probably would have been rethinking certain things. I think, do you find um, that it's one of the reasons why we, I want to do this podcast is to, to talk about the things that we don't talk about. And there's lots of things around well, pregnancy and birth that for some reason us mothers don't talk about. This the bad stuff we don't talk about. So when you yeah. think of pregnancy and being a midwife, it's all full of flowers. Somebody has a baby. You follow no, it's funny that you say that. It's funny that you say that because a lot of the time it's, it swings both ways because only they either only tell you the bad stuff or they don't speak about the bad stuff. I think in, in relation to what the podcast is about, they don't speak about it. But for example, when you're talking about uh, the birth process, they will always tell you the bad bits, how much it hurts, you know, the perineal trauma, the, oh my gosh, it took how many hours? I was in oh, labor yeah. for 99 hours. You know, all of those bad bits. But there are certain elements about it, like you've been saying, that, that is kind of taboo. Yeah, um, I think baby loss is definitely so, one of them. 100%, 100%. Um, and it's, it is hard to talk about. It is hard to talk about because death in itself and loss in itself is quite a tricky, tricky, tricky subject to approach because I guess, one again, one of them things that you don't know how people are going to take it and you don't want to offend or you don't want to cause more turmoil or, or distress. So, um, yeah, it, it's definitely very important and empowering to talk about loss especially for the people that have experienced it because it makes it feel like that person or that baby that they've lost is actually important. It's actually a, you know, a, a real person. It's a person. Yeah, yeah 100%. Are we not, well, we're not talking about a person that we loved. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's easier to talk about somebody that's lived a life, a longer life, yeah. because you can share memories with people and people feel a little bit more comfortable about that. But when it yeah when it's a baby and if nobody else has met that baby or had that bond with you, with your baby it does make it a lot harder and 100%. and it is you're right it by talking about it you're validating them you're validating their life and acknowledging their life and I think for a lot of people for me personally very important mm. it's really important I do think also that um, some of that has to do with culture as well um, we don't in Black culture speak about any ailments that we have that can affect our mm -hmm. um, children. So a prime example is when women come to the to their first booking appointment, and they say, oh, is "There's any family history of whatever?" Um, I'm not sure. And then you, they go home and ask, "Mum, when you had me, did it, was there anything?" Well, <laughs> I had this and I had that, and then run me to the theatre. Like, yeah. <laughs> out, like, whoa, like, I didn't say this to me because it's impacted my journey now. And do you know what I mean? Lots of, lots of different issues and health conditions and whatever that actually really does impact sickle cell. The amount mm. of people that find out that they've got sickle cell is the first time when they get, when they become pregnant is wild. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. yeah. So I never yeah. thought about that. Like. Never thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of people don't have blood tests for sickle cell until they become pregnant. Yeah, yeah, I've never been tested for it other than yeah. being when I'm pregnant. No, they diagnosed me with um having a heart, a slight heart murmur, 
mm. and uh, fibroids when I was pregnant with my first daughter. So it wasn't until having like all of the different tests. I mean, there's nothing wrong with my part. It is fine. But I didn't know that there was anything mm. there. And it's true you say about the cultural thing, because I think even now with anything, anything relating to below your belly button is taboo. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> if it's got anything to do with sex, gynecological periods, any of those things, the only time that it's spoken about is if you are a young girl growing up and, you know, they're trying to tell you what to do or telling you don't go near to boys, just don't go near to them. You don't need to know why, just don't go. <laughs> and so I do think that it's a cultural thing. Um, just going back to what we were saying, uh, so obviously the, the the podcast itself is is about people that have suffered maybe loss or you know just general kind of life things that happen with us as women and children and and all of that type of thing. Um, and so when we when as we've been talking and and saying our experiences and both Louisa and I have told our stories in terms of maternity and birth, is that there is. Um, I don't know, there seems to be a different experience that black and brown mothers um, have when it comes to maternity. And I know Louisa, she might be able to elaborate on this with her particular situation that she had with uh, Zion. Um, but what's your thoughts on that? Like, what has your, been your experiences or uh, any differences that you perceive there to be in terms of how black and brown mothers are maybe treated or their outcomes? The statistical evidence is there. What, what is so, it? Is it one in four women now? It used to, was it one in five before? It's it one in, it's, well, I only know it on this, the opposite version that five times more likely to one experience maternal death. Um, they are more likely to have low birth weights, more likely to have um, diabetes and other comorbidities in their pregnancies. Um, there's a raft, raft of, of um, inequalities in maternity care for black and brown women. Um, and I was just trying to, the reason why I'm hesitating a bit is I was just trying to think back to what I have seen um, with my eyes, which is limited because obviously when you look after someone, you kind of, it's one-on-one -on -one more than anything. But I've kind of picked up on certain things that sometimes happen in, in I wouldn't even just um, keep it down to maternity care, kind of. For example, one of the things that's been bugging me and I've raised recently with, you know, people that I know and work with is things like, um, you know, when you go and you are handing over at the end of your shift, you hand over to the next person that's coming on, you give all the relevant details, you tell them the history, what's happened up to that point, all of the bits and pieces that you'd want to know to look after someone safely. Um, and at times you hear things like, before the handovers even started, oh, I've had such a hard day, oh, I've been looking after this woman, okay, cool. Let's start the handover. All right, so in room whatever is um, this Asian lady, why are we leading with that after you've just set the precedent for the fact that you've had a really hard day and it's been challenging and mm. her ethnicity has nothing to do with the relevant information that I am going to need to know Can I ask to look after this person. 100%. Do, do you ever hear anyone referring to 
I've got this white lady. Never. <laughs> not never, not once. It's interesting, isn't it? And that, that's, what I was, that's what I was kind of getting to is that we, we, we do think, make associations with, I've had a hard day, there's this Asian lady in the room, or, I mean, I don't understand really what someone's ethnicity has to do with the care that they're about to receive in terms of what you should be doing and, and how you're supposed to be looking after them. Not, e not even on the white side, you know, not even to say someone's white, what their ethnicity has nothing to do with the level of care that you're supposed to be providing. Yeah, so that, I really that's why I ask. That's for me. It's always a rule of thumb. If it's if it's done the other way, then it's then it's fair. But if it's not, then it's not. It's not equal. Mm. Um. So yeah, there's there's you know there's a lot of people that will have their own experiences and and yeah, I think yeah. black and brown. You know, you know when it's so vast, it's just so obvious, and yeah. so there, and there's so many different ways that it manifests itself. Um, and I think, you know, and then you have the cross-sectionality cross of it in the sense of if you then have a black or Asian woman who is also young or you have one who is older or you have one that presents with something they've got, English is not their first language or, you know, something along that. It's like everything then gets compounded and what we know or what we call unconscious bias and prejudice and all of those things said come out almost naturally you said unconscious <laughs> well you said let's give the benefit of the doubt that you could be <laughs> unconscious <laughs> well yeah benefit of the doubt benefit of the doubt but yeah you know what to be honest you know everyone has um their experiences and everyone can pick out the negative parts of their experience you know there are many people of other ethnicities that have um, bad experiences as well. But I think if you're looking at the, the, the um, frequency of, you know, black women and brown women having these sorts of experiences, um, then we're going 10% to 90%. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Or I don't know. I don't have the, the statistical number. They don't lie and they're there. But the, what, what's really scary and worrying and annoying is that nobody can tell you why they can no. tell you this is what's happening but there's not a why mm. and there doesn't seem to be any interest in finding out what the why no. is it's okay here's a solution we'll induce you two weeks early and add more mm. to your pregnancy but yeah. we're not going to find out why you're at risk in the first place no can I ask a question with that actually off the back of that so you say you as a you know qualified midwife um, practitioner has an awareness of say what could be some of the um, maybe stereotypes or just not particularly treating black women according to their needs how much say do you as a midwife have with treatment plans for women that come in so would you would you be have the space to offer your opinion say if a doctor was saying this is what we think we should do or whatever would you have the space to offer an opinion with how to make that care better or is it I, 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 uh, midwives are trained in normal normal um deliveries and births yeah. yeah and pregnancies when they step outside of normal it then becomes under obstetrics so um you don't get a say as such the, the doctor will always generally make a plan for what they think is the best plan of action to to avoid negative outcomes but you can 
definitely support and advocate. That's your role is to advocate for the woman and try and meet her with what she wants in terms of her journey versus what is being recommended and give her the enough information to make informed decisions about her pathway. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, you, you could... Do you, feel, do you feel that there are a lot of midwives that feel comfortable? Because you, you mean, you come across, Grace, that you seem quite com confident and uh, you would more than likely, maybe, maybe I might be wrong, but you, you're appearing to me that you would, if you felt something was wrong, you'd say. But yeah. do you feel that many midwives have that confidence to be able to do that? No, probably. I mean, well, I don't, I, I don't know. In my experience, it's, it is hard. I'm, I'm not going to lie. It's hard to, because healthcare in itself is a very hierarchical, um, hierarchical. Yes, I've noticed system. that myself in the hospital. It's a very hierarchical. Everyone's very quiet. Yeah. So, for example, even if you go on a ward round, um, the consultant will you know decide what the plan will be the senior the registrar which is kind of stepped down from a consultant will make sure it gets carried out the junior doctor does the running and does the doing and then the midwife or nurse or whoever it is cleans up afterwards if you like you know what I mean not to make it that's that's the feeling. I'm not saying that's how it is exactly because in different rooms with different doctors, there are some doctors who work collaboratively with like midwives and, you know, the rest of the staff really, really well to make sure that women have, you know, feel like they um, are in control of their care and not kind of dictating. But historically, that's how it's been. You're right in the sense that I most more time more often than not feel quite confident to do that but it takes it takes kahunas to do it yeah, i mean and, and i salute you for that as well and I, we need more people like you grace <laughs> we need more champions we really do because yeah. if i had somebody that understood me understood my culture and you know i felt cared about me in throughout my pregnancy especially if you, the way you're working now if you're with people from the community and then if you get to be there when they have their baby as well I mean mm. that's lovely I'm not I, I've, I've given birth four times and none none of my community midwives have been there no I've in fact I've hardly seen them the first two I barely saw my community midwife I, I saw a different midwife every time so, yeah um, yeah it, I do think that has an impact if you have the same person especially if you're a, a a mum who's lost as yeah. well. Yeah. It does make a difference. Because for me, going through the NHS, every single person that I met, I had to re-explain my story. Because none of yes. them yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that is that is a huge part of why um continuity is even a thing now. I mean, historic back in the day, that's what they used to do. They used to caseload and you would see your midwife would see you all of the time and they'd be on call for you and stuff like that. And there was that element of burnout for the staff or midwives that are consistently on call or having to work yeah. right through the clock and things like that. So it wasn't really that sustainable. But I think now we're trying to get back to, to trying to find ways that we can facilitate that again. That um, because we know that the benefits, the benefits for women who have continuity are huge, you know, less and it, it seems even things that you don't even think about tearing or perineal trauma um having epidurals things like that that you don't even think would have an impact on 
okay, so she's seen the same midwife the whole way through and now someone from her team is there to look after her. The level of trust that you have because you know that team, yeah. they work together, they work collaboratively and, you know, you trust them. So there have been times where the doctor will come in and do a ward round and say blah, 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 X, Y, Z. And then they'll look at you like, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they don't care what anybody else has to say. They know it's a doctor. They know the doctor's been medically trained and has so much X amount of experience, but they want to know what you think because they only trust you. Not only, but do you know what I mean? They they have that They've level of trust. You, that you yeah. know them. Yeah. And you, I think I think in my story, that lack of continuity was what was detrimental because I had, and, and you will know nowadays, there's a lot more women that are choosing natural births choosing home births all of that type of thing and I was one of those women and I I had a pool up in my living room and then I had my midwife that I had been seeing and knew about my natural birth and had experience in hypnobirthing which is what I was doing she wasn't available or on holiday or something and this woman's come through my front door that totally was like why are you not going in the hospital why are you not you know that was the first thing and it ended up and I said, you know, my story's on another podcast with me having given birth to my daughter on at the top of the, of the stairs on the landing outside of the toilet because this lady had practically forced me to go to the toilet when I told her I'm going to have a baby soon. Mm. And she didn't believe me because she didn't know me either. So she's listening to me thinking I'm talking rubbish because clearly women in labour talk rubbish. And <laughs> But, you know, I just think that that... that continuity piece and I get what you're saying about the burnout because it's almost impossible maybe to have the same midwife guaranteed to be there yeah, when you yeah. go into labour say yeah. for example um, but even if there was a group of four or something yeah. if they arranged it in a way so that you only saw these four midwives so on your when you came time to give birth the likelihood is you would get one of the four yeah. I think even that would yeah. be more sustainable and a, a, a midway point really for women so the team that I'm on is a team of eight um antenatally through your pregnancy you always see max well I say always it, you know star sickness and different things impact but you see um maximum of two midwives okay that's good um good, yeah then each shift Ideally, again, you know, it's not enough hours, not enough people to cover all, all the hours in the day, but ideally on each shift, there's one person from the team on call for labour care. So you would be available, whoever, someone from the team comes in in labour, that person will be looked after by our team. And then we all coordinate postnatal visits to go and see that person once they've gone home from the hospital. So it works really, really well in that sense. But again, it's quite a new, con it's not a new concept, it's a new thing that's been trying to be implemented in in trust you know staffing at the moment is yeah is, everywhere by the, by the sound things um but just going back to like you know what you were saying about your experience of of loss and stuff like that I think you know the workforce in maternity and midwifery is getting younger and younger and younger all the more older experienced midwives who are not afraid to talk about stuff like this or you know address you know, and sit and look you and say, you know, whatever it is that you need to hear in that moment have are retiring and, you know, are burnt out or whatever. And not not to down on any of the younger midwives because they've got a wealth of experience and knowledge and, and stuff and skills that a lot of the old ones weren't able to, to gain before they left the, the profession. But the generational thing is very real. 
yeah. in terms of what's normal between generations. And I think that has a huge part to play. Like for me, I'm like one of the oldest midwives in my trust and I'm only 36. I'm not one of the oldest midwives, but I'm kind of the school of yeah. the mummy midwife. Like all yeah. of the midwives in my team, my, my babies, you know, and I'm like, I'm 36. <laughs> You know, so that has, I think, a lot, you know, that even things like we were talking about, the power of touch. I'm not afraid to give a, a woman a massage on her back and, you know, come lift up the, the your bottom, let me put this, the sheet underneath you. And, you know, I'm that type of person, I'm hands-on. And, and sometimes, you know, there's a, a bit of fear around some of these things, saying to a woman, you know, how yeah, you feel. I hear that. And then, that's, and that's, but then it's the confidence as well, like you say, it's the confidence as well, having that confidence. And that comes with time as well. Yeah, so yeah. experience. What are you saying about, do you know, you, you're having the confidence to, to work with women. Tell them.